So the reason I want to look at Galatians is because um, it it's a great kind of summary of you know the gospel, you know the situation that man faces before God with the law and the gospel. And uh, let me pull up this uh, document very quickly. Um, you know, it, it, it's a it's a lot like the Book of Romans. It deals with a lot of the same issues, but it's much smaller. And it's one of the more emotionally charged books in the Bible. And when Paul is writing Galatians, you can see the steam coming out of his ears and the fire coming out of his eyes. He is really mad that all the work he put into these churches, and it's more than one church. Galatia was a big area. It's in modern-day Turkey. So it was more than one church. And he's writing to all the churches that are there in Galatia. And the, the basic concept or basic background is is this that Paul went to Galatia on a missionary journey and he went and preached the gospel and he started churches there and the gospel um, to put it simply is what Jesus Christ has done for people on the cross and from the you know through his resurrection um, so that people could be freed from their sins and have the promise of everlasting life and it's the belief that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient. Um, it, it, it's necessary for our salvation, and it's sufficient for our salvation. So we are not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Christ has done for us. And it's not a combination. You know, This is where another difference with Roman Catholics or Mormons or anyone who is a, a big word would be synergism working together, synergism, working together. Lutherans and other Reformed Christians are monergists, mono, one, and then monergists. Uh, You know, we believe God saves alone by himself. So, um, so that's what Paul says in Galatians very clearly. I believe he, he is preaching the gospel of monergism, if you will, one savior in God alone, not us working together, not us cooperating with God, you know, so that's a very different understand, way of understanding things. Um, one of the questions on the test uh, that, that any, anyone who takes this class has to, has to take is, what is the gospel and what is the law? So that's something I want everyone to be able to say very easily. So first, the law. What is the law? The law of God is what you should do. That's, the, that's my four-word answer what you should do. Does that mean you should obey civic law? Generally, unless it violates your conscience or your religion or something like that. But it's not just the speed limit and, you know, laws about, you know, it's it's the law. It's what we should do. It it includes a lot of what's in the Old Testament, but not everything in the Old Testament. I mean, you might even argue, you know, really the 10 commandments which we'll get to later, really is a summary of the law. Um, God's moral commands on how we should live. So what is the law? What you should do. And you know if you should do it. You know what the law is because God already wrote it on your heart. So when you steal something, you know you shouldn't steal it. It, You have conviction of that in your heart already. So, So the law is what you should do. The gospel, what God has done for you. 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Yeah, six words. So see, one is active, one is passive. Active, we should be actively obedient to the law. Yes. Okay. The 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 gospel is God's work on our behalf for us. So you know, one of the things we emphasize in the Lutheran tradition is the importance of those two words for you. You know, because the gospel is what God has done for you. It is for you. It is for Evan. It is for Abel. It is for Melissa. So, um, so what is the gospel? The gospel is what God has done for you. What is the law? The law is what you should do. And so in Galatians, what we're going to see is a wonderful and succinct, you know, brief way that, that you know, the Christian is to understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. So let me, I'm gonna, before we get to Galatians, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a quick step back in the Acts again. Remember Acts, if you want to look up Acts 15. Acts 15. Acts is right after Romans, and Romans is right after the four gospels. And so remember, Acts is Luke's sequel to his gospel, Okay. So after he writes the Gospel of Luke, uh, he, he writes the book of Acts. And Acts tells the story of Paul, and uh, sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. So it's going to be about four or five books before Galatians. So it'll be in the New Testament, closer, closer to Galatians. No, that's, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, Acts of the Apostles. Keep going. It'll just be a few back. No, no, the other way. Yeah, keep going. You'll see Romans. It's before Corinthians. Uh, you know, you'll see Romans. It's after Romans. No, it's before Romans. Before Romans. Yeah, before Romans. Sorry, sorry, sorry. One book before. Yeah. And so 15th chapter is what we're looking for. 16. Yeah, 1 5. So remember, Paul was a character his his name was Saul of Tarsus yes. originally and so he persecuted Christians because he was being obedient to his Jewish faith and his understanding he was Jew or he was uh, Roman both actually that becomes very important in the book of Acts because his Roman citizenship saves his life uh, and he actually makes an appeal to Caesar to spare his life and uh, there's an interesting story with that in fact you know that's one of the reasons he was trying to get to Rome we think was to appeal to Caesar himself to spare his life because as a Roman citizen you could always appeal to Caesar up yeah. the chain of, of, of the courts. But the Jews wanted to kill him because he was preaching that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was the fulfillment of, of, of the Old Testament. So, um, but, but long story short, Jesus calls him into ministry and Paul comes to see that he has a particular ministry to the Gentiles, that is non-Jews to preach to them the gospel that a Jewish Messiah is also for non-Jews. And this was a bit of a difficult thing for the early church to understand. So if we look in Acts 15, we, we, we have, an, it's a, called the Jerusalem Council. And Paul and other elders in Jerusalem are meeting and they're trying to figure this out. What is the relationship between the Jewish believers and the Gentiles, and, and do you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? So let me read a little bit of it uh, and just follow along right at Acts 15. 
But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed both through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, let me stop there. So what you've got is Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all men, Jew or Gentile. Others are saying, the Pharisees are saying in this case, you have to circumcise them. Remember, that was part of the Jewish law. Yes. That was the sign of Abraham's covenant. Yes. Lots of talk about circumcision. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so basically, Paul is saying, no, you don't have to follow the Jewish law to have this Jewish Savior because Christ fulfilled the law. So you don't have to do it anymore, in essence, especially the ceremonial laws regarding sacrifice and you know those sorts of things um so that's the conflict do you have to become a jew to get circumcised and follow the law of moses so that you can then have a jewish savior paul says no you don't have to do that you don't have to you don't have to become an ethnic jew you don't have to become a ceremonial jew to be saved by jesus christ so they gathered together verse six to discuss the matter and after there had been much debate peter stood up and said to them Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to hear? I'm sorry, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name. And with this it is written, and he quotes some other scripture uh, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In other words, they're now looking at the Old Testament passages, of which there are many, that prophesy that a Savior will come for the Gentiles too. So they're not just arguing about a theological matter, they're actually looking at Scripture in the Old Testament and seeing that the fact that the light would be for the Gentiles as well is seen in the Old Testament, okay? So that's the basic issue that is going on in, in Galatians. So let's let's turn back now to Galatians. And, Gentile is the people who's not Jews, right? right? It's anyone who's not a Jew is, is basically a Gentile. So in, in, in Peter's, you know, or, or in their context, it really would have been pagans, you know, Romans. But, you know, the Roman Empire did have a way of um, bringing people from all over the world, you know, together. Yes. You know, I mean, 
you know, Africans uh, and, uh, you know, just people from, from all, and the Roman Empire was huge. So I wouldn't say it's just, you know, Europeans, you know, or something like that. I mean, it would have been people of anyone who wasn't, who wasn't a Jew. Okay, so that's kind of the context for, for Galatians. Um, and so let, let's look at Galatians. Um, basically, Paul has already ministered to the Galatians, and now he's writing a letter Having left them to go on somewhere else, he's writing a letter back to them because once he left, people, Jews, he calls them the circumcision party uh, or Judaizers, they come in later and say exactly what happened in Acts. The Pharisees that said, well, you have to become a Jew. You have to get circumcised so that you can have Jesus as your Savior. And this really bothers Paul. So let's just read through it. Uh, Galatians 1. Uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, so let me just stop there quickly and say, the very first thing that Paul does is he establishes his authority. Yes. He says, I am an apostle of Christ, but not because some other men gave me that authority. He says, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He is claiming that none other than Jesus and the Father have equipped him and called him to be an apostle to, to these people. So he's laying out his authority, and that, that's very important to Paul. And it's actually important to us. I mean, why is this scripture, why is this letter part of scripture? Because Paul had authority. He had apostolic authority from, from God himself, okay? So that's, that's, that's a very quick introduction, and now we get to verse 6, and he does not waste any time at all. Here we go. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, there's a lot there. Um, he's very angry. Yeah, he's angry. He's yeah. not happy with the situation. Exactly. He's saying, you guys are leaving me. You're deserting me to a different gospel. Now, is there a different gospel? No, he doesn't mean that there's... This kind of gospel and that kind of gospel and that kind of gospel and they're all okay and any one you have is... No, there's only one gospel. Only That's one gospel. He always, in this letter, he always, uh, how you say, uh, pointing there, this is the only gospel. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And that's the main kind of point here of Galatians. So he's saying other people are... And, and, and in verse 8 through and 9 is just incredible. I mean, he's saying even if an angel from heaven came and preached a different gospel, let them be accursed, or the Greek word there is anathema, which means let them be damned. I mean, he is damning them to the pit of hell. If you preach a different gospel, 
You are to be damned. You are to be accursed. It's very, very powerful language, you know. Um, and, and he is saying, look, I'm not seeking the approval of man. I'm only telling you the truth that God has revealed plainly to me about what the gospel is. Okay, so, so those are the stakes. Um, that's the problem is that people are coming in with a different gospel. And, 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 and notice, by the way, you know, in some respects, it's not that different of a gospel in, in, in certain respects because what they're saying is they still love Jesus, the other people, right? They still believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. It's not wholly different. It's not like the Mormon gospel or, um, or others today even, I mean, who really do preach a different gospel. It, it, all that they were saying is you need to be circumcised to come into the Jewish kind of group to have a Jewish savior. But to Paul, it was enough, it was enough to be damned for saying. So one of the questions we have to deal with in the modern day with a book like Galatians is, who are the people today who are adding to the gospel? You know, and I would say that there are many people who are adding much more than circumcision, you know, to the gospel. Um, you know, and, and, and what would Paul say about them? He'd say they're damned. They're damned to the pit of hell. I mean, it's, a, it's an anathema. It's, it's, a, it's a gospel that isn't the true gospel. If it's not the true gospel, it's a false gospel. If it's a false gospel, it can't save. So, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll give some, like one, one quick example that I, I give is, you know, in some churches, some churches really talk a lot about, like, giving money, you know, and they talk about tithing, 10%. And some talk about it in different ways. Some say you have to tithe, you know, 10%. You have to give 10%. Some say 10% is a good number to give, okay? But those who say it's demanded, I, I would argue that they're adding you know, something to, to your relationship to God that is inappropriate. Um, or some people say that God, um, you know, you know, God, uh, God will bless you, but if you do, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, that is adding to the gospel. Because the gospel promise is not that we'll have a, a, a financially prosperous life or a healthy life or anything like that. That's not the promise of the gospel. And so therefore to say, if you do this, then God will reward you. Well, that's what they were saying to the Galatians. If you get circumcised, you can be part of the true faith. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what the gospel's about. So, um, so we have to listen in the modern day to very, you know, we have to listen carefully to how others will add anything at all to the gospel. Because if anything is added to the gospel or our requirement to be able to receive the gospel, it's wrong. it's wrong. And if it's wrong, it's not right. And if it's not right, it can't save. Yes. So um, now we'll, we'll, we'll talk, does that mean that we should not follow the law? No, it does, it, we should still follow the law. We and, have to, yeah. Yeah, yep, yep, and to God what is God's, yeah, and a brilliant saying, and uh, and, and there, are, there are plenty of, pat and Paul will get into this later, and when we get there, we'll, we can maybe kind of go through it quickly, because I'm kind of preempting that, but, um, you know, what he's basically saying is that 
you know, why are we still obedient to the law? Well, because we're made in God's image and we the law is written on our hearts and it's what we ought to do. I would say it is how we love our neighbor by being obedient to the law. You know, who benefits when I do not commit adultery? My neighbor. You know, m me too, but my neighbor, my wife, you know, etc. Everyone, everyone around. Who benefits when I do not steal? Who benefits when I do not covet? Who benefits when I do not uh, murder? My neighbor. So we love our neighbor. I mean, the reason that we're obedient to the law is because the law is still in place. It is still for us. Uh, it is still for us to obey, and our it's a way that we show our neighbor that we love them because we're obedient to God's law. So, okay, let's keep going. Uh, verse uh, verse 11 now. 11? Yeah, verse 11, still in first chapter. Uh, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I revealed it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Um, then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to, to, to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So he, he's laying out again that, you know, he's not preaching man's gospel. It was taught through a revelation of Jesus Christ, is what he says. He, he's saying that he used to be a good, he was a Pharisee. That means he was part of a group of Jews who were very eager zealous to obey the law, the whole Old Testament law, and then they added laws as well. So he's not just some guy. I mean, he was, the, you know, one of the great Jews of Jerusalem, you know. Yeah. He probably had, you know, I said last time, you know, he probably had the first five books of the Bible memorized uh, and probably much more of the Old Testament completely committed to memory. So, you know, he's very zealous, he says, for the traditions of my fathers. Um, and he says that when he received the vision, which we talked about last time, it's recorded in Acts, he received a vision, he was going to Damascus to, to arrest Christians, and he saw the, the vision from heaven. And then for several days he was blinded, and, he, and then scales fall from his eyes, and he was able to see after three days, he was baptized, and he eventually went out and preached the gospel. He didn't consult with the apostles in Jerusalem, though. That's the important part. He didn't go and ask their permission. Remember, Peter, Paul was not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, right? He, he comes later. He's, yes. he's after the resurrection. He's already killing Christians, yes. Stephen. So he's the really the one apostle 
who is not the eyewitness to the resurrection. So Jesus especially calls him to be one who preaches the gospel. And he goes and does it, you know. And back then, that was before Facebook, no one knew what he looked like. No one knew. They, they, they might have heard of Saul of Tarsus, but when he shows up in town and starts preaching the gospel, they don't know who it is. But eventually he tells them. You know, and he said, uh, he said, they would say then, the last couple verses, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. See, you know, one of the great proofs, if you need it, of Christianity's truth is that is, is Paul, Paul's life. You know, he did a total 180, a total turnaround of going from destroying the church to dying for the church. I don't think people do that for the fun of it, especially when you find out he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was left in exposure, left for dead, he was hungry, he was imprisoned, he was crucified, ultimately, we, we believe, according to tradition, for the faith. So, you know, uh, Paul is one of the best evidences, if you will, uh, of the truth claims of the scriptures. Um, you know, that he really believed Jesus was crucified and resurrected and it was the, it was the gospel. But in, any thoughts about chapter one? Yeah. Um, no, that's, uh, I really like, I never read Paul before, but I really like him. Yeah, he's a he's an I interesting mean, guy. What you talk about is, is a real crew. It's not like somebody always was believing in Jesus. Yeah. Before that, he even killed Christians. Right. And, right. And persecution. Right. Want to eliminate? Right. No more. I don't want no more. Right. So that's a real crew. Right. Well, I, I I agree. It's um, it's really a remarkable story. And in Galatians, what I like about Galatians especially is that you really. He, Paul just jumps off the page. You know, you're reading a real letter that a real person wrote. It's not, you know, you mentioned some of the other religious books. To me, they don't, they're not authentic. They don't feel authentic because they're very flowery or, you know, when you read Paul, you get to know Paul, you know, and, uh, you know, in that respect, it's remarkable. But let, let's keep going because... Now, what you have in Galatians 2 is what we read in Acts 15. Galatians 2? Yeah. Remember that? We, just, we, we started with Acts, the 15th chapter. Yes, yes. So this is now the, where these things come together, which is, which is really cool. Okay. So he says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother is secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God chose no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay. So he's now giving his account of Acts 15. Yes. Luke wrote about Acts, you know, this meeting, but now Paul gives his account of it, which is just fascinating to have multiple, what you call multiple attestation, multiple people attesting the same, the same event. Yes. Um, and he's saying, he has an interesting note about Titus. Titus is Greek. That means he was not circumcised. And he was, what Paul is saying is that there were people who pressured us to get Titus circumcised, and we did not. Because we said, no, we, we're not going to submit to you even for a moment. And, I mean, listen to the language. He says, so that they might bring us into slavery. Yes, we use a lot of uh, yeah. the word slavery, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he means, he means it in the worst way, right? Um because he believes that if you're going, if, if the law is your path to salvation, then you had better become a slave to the law with no room for error. If the law is going to be what saves you, then you better be obedient to it perfectly. Yes. That's the stake of following the law. And later he's going to say, if you have to be circumcised, you've got to follow all of the law. And uh, he goes so far as to say, you might as well emasculate yourself. Yes. Very strong language. Very strong language, right? So, um, so, um, so he's saying, I went to I went to Jerusalem after 14 years to make sure that the gospel I was preaching was in accordance with the gospel that the others were preaching. And he says, you know, it didn't make any difference to me because I knew that I had a revelation from God. You know, and I don't. God is not a respecter of persons. You know, God shows no partiality. So it didn't matter to me that these people in Jerusalem were influential because I knew what the gospel was. But um, out of respect to work together, this is, this is what we did. And we agreed that I would go to the Gentiles and that they would go to the, to the Jews. So it's not like they didn't want Jews to become Christians. Yes so to speak. Um, it, it's just that Paul had a mission to the Gentiles and, and they would others would do outreach to the Jews and that was okay. The last line, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Um, that probably is a reference to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem because they were still facing heavy persecution in Jerusalem. So I, I don't think that's just a reference to poor people, you know, to raise money for poor people. It, it might be, but I, I, my understanding is that that's a reference to just because you have a ministry to the Gentiles, don't forget that our ministry to the Jews is a very difficult ministry because they had to convince Jews in Jerusalem that Jesus was the Messiah, you know— who, who was crucified and risen from the dead, who was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I mean, that was a very controversial message. Some Jews go to the uh, change to the Christian religion. 
Most of the early Christians, you know, the first Christians were Jewish. Jewish yeah. yeah. Because, you know, the belief was that, I mean, it's true, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecy. And so the, the Jews were always the first to hear. In fact, Paul himself, even though he has a ministry to the Gentiles, he would always go to Jewish synagogues first. He'd preach the gospel there and have as many converts as he could. And then he would set up a church and then do ministry to Gentiles. And he might be there for a year, two or three years. And he would often have his own job. He was a tent maker. So he would make tents for a living and he would have this ministry that he was also do. Um, to this day, someone who's a part-time pastor and a part-time bus driver, uh, insurance salesman, whatever else, they're still to this day called a tent maker oh, really? pastor because that's what Paul was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but he would always go to the Jews first because it's an offensive message, but it makes the most sense to the Jew. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecy. The, old, the entire Old Testament is about God's revelation to his chosen people, which is fulfilled in Jesus. The whole, the whole Old Testament is setting the, the way for Jesus, and only the Jews had the Old Testament. Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament. They were pagan. They had Zeus and Mars and Athena and Venus and all their own dumb gods that didn't exist. So the difficulty... The difficulty in ministering to the Gentiles was that they had, they had no Old Testament. Why would a Jewish Messiah be their savior? It didn't make any sense. He was crucified. That's a sign of weakness. That's a sign of loss. That's a loser. <laughs> you know, why, why would that guy be a savior? So preaching to the Gentiles was not offensive as, as offensive as it was to the Jews. I mean, it was offensive. It, the gospel's always offensive because it has to, we have to be sinners for the gospel to be true, and people don't want to be sinners. But, but it wasn't as offensive to Gentiles, but it was strange. It was, it was weird. I mean, it was, it was not the message the, the Gentiles were used to hearing and believing about God. There's only one God. He became flesh. He was crucified. He was risen from the dead. He died for the sins of all the people. That's a weird message to, 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 to Gentiles. And I would argue we, that's the challenge we face today. We live in a, in, a, in a Gentile, if you will, society, you know, where we have to convince people that a, a dead, in fact, a lot of atheists will very pejoratively say, Jesus is just a dead Jew, just a dead Jew. You know, the, the concept that a dead and risen Jew would have any benefit to modern people, you know, they just have a they just have a hard time with that. Okay, well let's let's jump back to verse eleven of of Galatians two. This tells the story of Peter and Paul, who are arguably the two most you know important men of the New Testament after Jesus, and it, this tells their story um, of when they had an argument. So verse 11 says, uh, when, when Cephas, that's Peter, Cephas is his Hebrew name. Cephas. Cephas. Yeah. What does it say? What is the Spanish word yeah, for Peter? Verse 11 of chapter 2 of Galatians. Yeah. You want to figure it out? I'll figure it out. I need glasses. 
Ah. Figured out that like in maybe three, four weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, is it Petros or uh, Pedro? Pedro, Pedro. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So in in uh, oh, he said, he said he's on the, in the Spanish Bible. No, no yeah. Word. Well, when I say Cephas, just know that that's Peter. Cephas. That's Pedro. Okay. Yeah, that's his. Hebrew. Peter is the Greek name, right? Peter's the Greek name. Hebrew is the is the uh, is the Hebrew name. So, uh, but I'll just say Peter. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Okay, what what happened was that, see, Jews did not eat certain food. In the Old Testament, you don't eat, you know, pork and uh, uh, and shellfish. Yeah, for Orthodox Jews, yes, they still would not eat that. So now Christians received a vision in Acts, the tenth chapter, that says Peter did that you can eat anything, and so um, ultimately that's why I can eat lobster, crawfish, pork etc because that those laws do not hold anymore to Christians so Peter and, and Paul are together and Peter's eating with Gentiles but then when some people from Jerusalem come the very conservative still Jews Peter pulls back oh I wasn't eating with them no no I wasn't doing that and Paul says what the heck What's your problem? You have to be, you know, stand for your convictions. You have to deal with it when the time comes, you know. And so he said even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul is left alone. Nobody's defending him here. And so Paul opposes Peter to his face. I mean, he got in his face and they, they really had it out, you know. And his argument is that, look, if you, if you live... If you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews, right? So, you know, he said, look, you can't go to the, to the Gentiles and, and still be a Jew, you know, because then it's, gonna, it's, a, it's going to compromise the gospel. That's the issue, the gospel. The gospel is always the issue. It's the most important issue because you've got to understand that the gospel does not depend on uh, our obedience to the law. It is God's free grace, free gift of grace to us through the work of Christ. So we don't have to obey a certain amount of law so that then we get the gospel. No, we get the gospel when we're dead, when we're hopeless, when we have nothing to offer. And then we are obedient to God, you know, because obedience is, is what we ought to be. And it's the way that we love our neighbor. Okay, so let, let's keep going now. Verse 15. Now here really is a summary of the gospel. Here is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful summary of the gospel. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I, uh, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Um, so what he's saying is that how are we made right before God? It's not through our obedience to the law. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to talk about Abraham and how Abraham was considered righteous before God by faith, not by obedience to the law. Remember, Abraham shows up in Genesis 12, and his story is until Genesis 20s, you know. That's before Moses. Moses doesn't show up until after the Exodus, or, well, with the Exodus of getting, you know, in the book of Exodus, getting the Jews out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. So, but Abraham is declared righteous by God long before the law is ever given. So our righteousness, our, our justification, our goodness comes not from obedience to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, but through faith in God. That is what makes us righteous, and that's what the gospel is. That's why the gospel is what God has done for us, because we can do nothing to earn it. Even our faith is a gift, because that's immediately then what we start to think, well, don't we have to have faith? Isn't that a work? No. Even our work, even our faith is a, is a work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we'll talk about that more when we go through the small catechism. Um, so he's, you know, the law, you know, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? It means he surrendered his life to Christ. You know, I, I have died. You know, in every Christian, in every adult who gets baptized, but every Christian who sincerely understands what it is to be Christian, part of what they're saying is, a part of me is dead. The old part of me that loves sin, that loves the things, you know, that part of me, I, I, not only is it dead, but I kill it every day. Part of, you know, that's part of what we mean by repentance. You know, we repent of our sin. And, we, and we're still sinners. So just because we kill it once, it, it comes back to life. <laughs> so it's like, uh, the, you know, uh, Medusa, right? You kill off one snake and there's another one, you know. So, you know, that's the nature of sin. You know, we're always going to be sinners, but every day through daily repentance, we grow in holiness. We grow in our desire to serve and love God. So that's what he says, you know, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The law is very good. The law is very useful. Every time I read the Ten Commandments, I see where I have sinned. So through the law, I see where I need to die to the law so that Christ can live in me. See, there's not room in here for, for holiness and unrighteousness. You, you can't have righteousness and unrighteousness. I mean, in, in, in a certain sense, that's our reality, but you can't love both. Yes. You know, 
you can have both maybe I'll put it that way because that's our nature we're both sinners and we're, we're, we're forgiven at the same time but you can't love both you can't love your sin and love Jesus something has to give you have to want you know God's holiness so that's what I, that's what I understand him to say through the law I knew what sin was so I died to that I died to to the law so that I might live to God. See, you got to kill one so that God can reign in your life. I've been crucified with Christ, so it's not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's that's why we're Christians. We are little Christs. Does that mean we're God? No, 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 nothing like that. But But Christ lives through us. How do people know we are Christian through our love for our neighbor? Right? In part. That's right. Absolutely. Because we want to, not because we have to. It's a very different relation now to the law. Do we, you know. So let's keep going now. We're in chapter 3. We'll get through chapter 3, and we're, we're done for the day. It's a little bit long, so I'm going to go fast. Here we get back to the angry Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those who those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed among along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, you know what a rhetorical question is, a question with an obvious answer, okay? That's what Paul is asking here. These are not sincere questions. He says, for example, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, it's a stupid question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, the, the flesh is d- down here. The flesh is corrupted. Yes. The flesh is, we're, we're all going to die one day. There's no hope in the flesh. The hope is in the spirit. The spirit is eternal. Our spirits are eternal. The spirit of God, God himself is spirit, and God is eternal. So you came to faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, Abel, follow Christ. Evan, follow Christ. Love God. Love the law of God. The spirit did that in you. You believed, you listened to Paul's preaching, you responded, you were baptized. And now, you're going to go de- back down to the flesh? You know, it's kind of like uh, somebody gives you a mansion, you know, a beautiful home with a swimming pool and a garden and ten butlers and three Rolls Royces and whatever. And then you say, I think I'm going to go live in the slum again. I'm yeah. going to go back to the streets. Yeah. That's what he's saying. You mean the Spirit gave you all these gifts and you're just going to give it up and go back to the flesh? You think that you think that what began in the Spirit cannot be made better by the flesh? 
You see, the law and the flesh are, are connected, and the spirit and the gospel are connected. I'm not saying there's not overlap there, but essentially what he's saying is you're now trading in the good things for the lesser things. He also now begins to make his argument connecting the Gentiles to Abraham. Now this is really interesting because remember, Abraham is before Moses. He is before God gives his law to Moses. Um, so, you know, for example, we would not say that Abraham was a Jew because the, the word Jew comes from one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob was uh, Abraham's grandson. Remember, Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau, but Jacob is the inheritor of the promise of Isaac and Abraham. So then Jacob has the 12 sons. Well, Judea, uh, or Judah, I'm sorry, is one of the 12 sons, and they end up being uh, the, the tribe that's in the southern kingdom, long story short, later on. So when the, at the time the Romans uh, are uh, conquering what we would call Israel, there's the 12 tribes are still really, they're not even there anymore. There's only two left, and one of them is the tribe of Judah and then the tribe of the Levites, who are the priests of the temple. So they just called the whole area Judea. Judea. So That's where the Judas uh, names come from? Judas? Jude, not Judas, uh, Jewish. Yeah, that's where the word comes from. Yeah. So they were the Judeans, which kind of just become shortened as they were the Jews. So, you know, that's why I don't even like to use the word Jew, because the, really it's Hebrew. When you talk about the whole group of people, they're the Hebrews or the Israelites. Hebrews, that, yeah. You know, that's a better word, I think, because Jew is only the Judean, the Judah, the Judah tribe was only one of the 12 tribes. But the point is that Abraham, see, was the grandfather of Jacob and the great grandfather of Judea. So he's, he's before the tribes. Yes. So it's not even proper to really call him a Jew or even a Hebrew or even an Israelite. But he is the father of these covenants of these people of God, you know. Um, so uh, it's okay, come on in. Um, so, so that's why Paul is going back to Abraham. Remember the very first class was on the Old Testament and I said that Genesis 1 to 11 was its own kind of thing and what happened in Genesis 12? Abraham. So now Paul is going back to Abraham and he's saying if you want to understand salvation, and how a person is made righteous before God, it's by faith. What's the example? Abraham's the example. It was before the, he was before the law. So also, this is I'm going to preempt this, and we'll go faster here, but see, God made a covenant with Abraham, and that covenant is still going on today, right now. That covenant is still happening. It's still, we're still under that covenant which is the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. That's what Paul says. He says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's through Abraham. The Mosaic covenant has it begun and it ended. See, it begun with Moses receiving the law on the mountain, giving it to the people, all the 600 and some odd laws and 
other laws too. But it was fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus was obedient to all of the Mosaic laws. He never ate pork. He never ate shellfish. He never wore the wrong clothes. He did not disobey the Ten Commandments. He was obedient to all of the Mosaic laws that God gave. And in his fulfillment of that law, he brought the Mosaic Covenant. He fulfilled it. I don't like saying it came to an end. That's not the fullness of the sense. He fulfilled it. So it technically ended, but not because God said, okay, it's over now. No, it, it came to an end because it was, you know, fulfilled. So Jesus, he followed that law, like don't eat pork, don't... Absolutely. Yeah, there's no evidence at all. Even his critics could never get him to... They could never prove that he was disobedient to any law. No, they tried. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we, we had to skip through really most of the content of the Gospels. Uh, I trust that anyone in this class needs to get familiar with the Gospels, you know, through church and Sunday school and other, other ways. But, um, you know, they tried to catch him in diso being disobedient to the Sabbath. But then he said, you know, the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, so even when they tried to get him to prove that he was being disobedient to the law, he always had a teaching that demonstrated he was not being disobedient to the law. Um, but they had come to misunderstand the law, and he had, he had the right understanding. So he fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant has come and gone. The Abrahamic Covenant, though, still carries on, and that's what we're in the middle of right now. It's the bringing the... The, the gospel to all the nations and the gospel is that we're reckoned righteous, we're declared righteous um, how does he say it here um, counted righteous, Abraham is counted righteous because he believed God so remember the gospel is what God has done for you it's a gift through faith and faith itself is the work of the Holy Spirit so we take credit for nothing. Yes. Take credit for nothing. That's the gospel. Okay. Okay. Let's let's keep going. Uh, this is now verse ten of the third chapter. He says, "For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them." Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there's a wonderful summary again of the good news. Okay, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That is a curse. And yet Christ was hanged on a tree. He became the curse for us. And what makes Christ effectuate the gospel, what makes Christ a sufficient sacrifice, is that he was innocent. That's why God had to become flesh. Because if I was put on a cross, I would deserve it. If you were put on a cross, you would deserve it too, even if you're a good guy. Yeah, he's the, right? he was the only one. He was the only one because it had to be a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish. Um, 
because that's the only sacrifice that God that can appease or delay or put off the wrath of God because God is perfect, God is holy, God is just. And we have to understand the holiness of God, the perfect goodness of God, which we are not. We are compromisers. Every human being is a compromiser. We all will sell our character and our good name for a little benefit. Every, everyone does it. Nobody's above that. God never does. God is perfect. He never compromises with, with evil and sin, ever. And so the only sacrifice to God that is acceptable to redeem man is if God himself becomes flesh. And that's what happened. That's who Jesus is. You know, so, so he becomes the curse for us so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Okay, let's keep going. We're, all, we're almost done here with chapter 3. This is verse 15 now. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, plural, uh, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, that's the Mosaic Covenant, 430 years. That's the time between Moses and Abraham. That's what he's referring to. So he says, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Well, it has been added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. By now, that faith uh, has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. Okay, so that was a long section and, and, and one of the more complicated. So, um, but he's saying then that the obvious question is going to be, the obvious question everyone's going to ask, and I guarantee you that if I went and preached the gospel to college students this afternoon, I'd get this question. I promise you. Every time the gospel is preached properly, the question's always, well, why then, why then the law? Why do I have to be obedient to the law? Paul preempts this question. He knows the question is coming. It comes up in Romans 2. He assumes the question is coming, and then he provides an answer. And he says, um, well, 
The law was given because of our sin. Our desire to sin from Adam on, we need the law until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, Jesus. So the law was given until Jesus could perfectly fulfill it. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay, I believe, in other words, angels gave the law to Moses. Moses was the intermediary. Okay. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? That's another thing people are going to say. Well, you can't say on the one hand that God is gracious and loving and forgiving and giving and da-da-da-da-da-da. And then, you know, there's the law. Those things don't work. He says, no, they're, they're different. They're not the same thing. The law and the gospel are not the same thing. So um, he says, certainly not. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. The law does not give life. That's not the purpose of the law. It was never intended to give life. So you can't now say that life comes through the law. Doesn't make any sense. You know, it would be like saying, um, you know, I'm going to put a banana in my gas tank. Why would you put a banana in your gas tank? Your car does not run on gasoline or on bananas. It runs on fuel. You need to put in gas. Uh, diesel fuel is fuel. Gas is gas. Anyway, uh, but the point is that you don't you don't assign the gospel. You don't give the work of the gospel to the law, and you don't give the work of the law to the gospel. They're, they work together, but they're not the same. And so that's what he's saying. He said. Um, for example, uh, where does he say? He says in verse 24, the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster is another way he says it. Our principal, our teacher, uh, our custodian is another word. There are all these words could be translated in different ways. But it was our schoolmaster, it was our teacher until Christ came. So the law had a purpose in our life together while we were waiting for Jesus to come. It taught us how to live good lives. And it was good. God ordained the law. The law is not bad. And that's one problem I have with a lot of liberal Christians is that they totally ignore God's law. You know, so now you have, in, in the modern day, you've got people who are advocating for same-sex marriage. They advocate for abortion. They advocate for in my opinion, clearly all manner of unholiness, unholy living, because they do not have proper respect for God's law. Oh, well, Jesus fulfilled the law, so it's all done. No, the law was always declared to be good. It comes from God. So it had a particular purpose, and even today it has a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is for us to know how we sin. It's for us to be humbled before God. And it tells us how we ought to live as Christians. So, you know, even when you're baptized, even when you become a full, full, a full-fledged Christian, yeah, you have to still follow the law. That's, you still have to follow the law. Now, the question is, which laws? You know, why not the food laws? Well, like I said in Acts 10, Peter received a vision about food. So, the ceremonial laws and the laws that dealt with Israel historically, we believe those are fulfilled and done. But the moral laws of God are unchanging because they come from God's nature and God's nature is unchanging. 
So the law to not commit adultery, to not steal, um, to not murder, to honor the Sabbath, to have no other gods before him, all those laws carry on. Sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah. What is uh, honor the Sabbath? So that's the, the third commandment of the Ten Commandments. And um, historically, the Sabbath day was today, Saturday. And still yeah, some... Sabbath is like a Jewish... Uh, I mean... Uh, yeah. So the, so the Jews, the Old Testament people, the Israelites, they so they that was a day of rest. Days of rest. Yeah, yeah it's a day of rest. So to honor the Sabbath means you... It's a way of sanctifying and trusting in the provision of God. That's what you do. That's why you rest. You say, I'm not going to produce my food today. I'm not going to produce for my home today. I'm going to rest and trust that God has given me enough to live for this day. It's a way of always remembering that God has done enough for us to, to live. Now, eventually that day, and it was also became a day of worship. Now, that day becomes Sunday by Christians because that is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And... We believe it to be also the day of new creation. This is a little complicated, but Sunday is the first day of the week, and it's the eighth day of the week. Um, see, God made the whole heavens and earth in seven days. The seventh day, he rested. And then later, he gives us the commandment to also rest on the seventh day. But on the day of resurrection we believe it is now ushering in the new heavens and the new earth that will be fulfilled perfectly when Jesus comes again. So you have creation on the first day, and then you have the whole seven-day week, and then on the eighth day is the new creation, which is what you and I are going to have one day when we die and go to heaven. That's the new creation. It's really not even heaven like clouds. It's really described as a new heavens and a new earth. It's an uncorrupted earth. It's earth before Adam and Eve fell into sin. It's earth before Genesis 3. That's what I believe heaven is. Perfect earth. No sin. Uh, no temptation to sin. Yeah. So, um, you know, so that's, that's really what, we, what it is that we have to look forward to, is the new heavens and the, and the new earth. So... Um, so, so is the law good? Yes, the law is good. The law had a purpose, but the covenant with Abraham is what we're under still to this day. We're obedient to the moral law of God because it revealed, it's revealed in God's nature and God's nature doesn't change and it's how we serve our neighbor. Again, who benefits when I don't steal, murder, and commit adultery, and so on and so forth? My neighbor. My neighbor. And in fact, the, the last two of the commandments are not to covet. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Now that's fascinating. Two of the Ten Commandments are about not even desiring to do the wrong thing. So our neighbor benefits even when we do not want what he has, but when we are content with what God has given us. It's a really fascinating way of thinking. Yeah.